This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. To begin with, uh, as you may have heard, there's an election coming up in Ontario. Uh, June the 7th, of course, is the provincial election. Uh, Last weekend, the Progressive Conservative Party selected their new leader. That, of course, is Doug Ford. Uh, And then uh, late yesterday, uh, kind of an unexpected twist to what's uh, going on in the legislature right now when it was announced that uh, the government was going to prorogue the legislature and actually introduce a throne speech on Monday. Joining us to talk about this is the Premier of the province of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne. Premier, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Why proroguing? Why at this stage? So uh, what uh, what we want to do is uh, deliver a throne speech to lay out our priorities bill um, and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty right now in uh, in Ontario so we want to just make sure that our priorities are clear for the rest of the legislative session and you have to have to prorogue in order to deliver a throne speech so we're doing it over this weekend uh, we'll resume on Monday and that's exactly what the legislative calendar dictates there're no uh, there're no uh, sitting days that are going to be missed. I, I know that uh, proroguing has actually become a kind of a dirty word because of the way it's been implemented in the past, but it's not an unusual parliamentary tool. No, no, no. This is this is pretty uh, run of the mill, and especially given that there's no um, that we're not missing any uh, any sitting days. It's really it's really a technicality that allows us to uh, deliver a throne speech and and lay out our priorities, and then as we go into the uh, the budget, it will be clear exactly what. Our, uh, what our uh, focus is on. But are, are these priorities that you're working on and that you're going to be introducing to us on Monday any different or that much different from what you've been talking about already? Well, they build on they build on what we've been doing, Bill. So um, you're right. You know, we we have focused on fairness and making sure that people have access to the supports they need. So whether it's uh, better retirement security, which we worked on when I first came into office, or free tuition, um, OHIP Plus for you know kids who will who now get free uh, prescription medication, or increasing the minimum wage. All of those things are uh, a recognition that uh, people, although the economy is growing in Ontario, not everybody's feeling it. So um, we've made a deliberate decision to continue to uh, build on that foundation. We know that there are families, for example, who are trying to find meta- mental health supports for their uh, for their kids. Then we know that there are uh, people who need more home care, or um, you know, are in a community where the hospital needs support. So that that we understand that at this point, this is not the time to turn back. So what we're doing is we're we're reinforcing and building on what we've already uh, what we've already put in place. Has this had anything to do at all with the fact that uh, the Doug Ford is leading the Progressive Conservative Party as opposed to one of the other potential candidates? No, our plan our plan for continuing to uh, continuing to find ways to to support people that that predated any uh, conservative leadership race and and in fact you know whoever the conservative leader was because we were watching the uh, the leadership race they were all um, going to take uh, or proposed to take the province in a very different direction than, than we're going in. You know, they all said they would step away from tackling climate change. They all said that they would cut across the board in government. And so that's a very, very different direction than we believe we need to go right now. You know, this is a, this is a moment when people in Ontario uh, need government to be involved. Um, government, government actually exists to do that, Bill, in my opinion, you know, to do the things that people can't do by themselves, to put in place the conditions 
conditions so that people can care for each other. Individuals and families can do a lot, but government needs to be part of the um, part of the support in their lives. What are the priorities? And I, I know, Premier, we're going to have a lot of time between now and, and, and June 7th to talk about issues and, and, and things of this nature. But but as you sit down there and work and, and fine-tune the, the throne speech that's going to be presented on Monday, where is the government focusing right now? Is it is it cities? Is it uh, health care? You've talked about that a couple of times in the last couple of days, uh, about mental health issues and support services yeah. and things of this nature. Uh, but, but we also know about the ongoing concerns uh, in cities, about transit, about affordable housing, uh, social service costs, things of this nature. Where, where do you prioritize these things? So those are, those are ongoing in terms of infrastructure and uh, support for housing. You know, Bill, we've, um, we've made a commitment working with the federal government to ongoing infrastructure building. So that's, you know, that is roads and bridges and transit. We've made that commitment. Um, we have an, uh, now we have a national housing strategy and we'll be working with the federal government. But there are some things that um, need a renewed and a, a heightened focus. So I have talked about mental health. That is one of them. Um, health care, we know that, you know, there, there have been billions of dollars that have been put into home care. Uh, we increase the funding for hospitals every year. But what we're hearing from our hospitals and from our health care system is that there is more that's needed. Part of that is mental health, but part of it is long-term care. Part of it is, you know, su- more supports for seniors as that population increases. Um, and child care. Um, you know, we're building 100,000 child care spaces, Bill, but affordability <coughs> continues to be an issue for, um, <coughs> for Ontarians. So that's something that, uh, that we are going to be focusing on. We have an issue here in Hamilton that I know that, uh, well, Ted McBeacon certainly is aware of, of course, so your MPP for this area, uh, and it has to do with offloading at hospitals and, and, uh, and a number of issues. And I know that the province has attempted to do something about that by offering funding uh, for extra staffing within the ERs themselves, but it doesn't seem to be working. I, does, is there a focus there? Is there a plan B to try to integrate? Because it's not a uniquely Hamilton problem, but it is a problem no. in our community. Yeah, and so so that you're talking about um, the the sort of backlog that happens at the emerge. Yeah. So yeah. So we have um, we have, as you said, we put uh, we put 1,200 new beds in place to deal. Particularly right now, Bill, there was a a pretty serious flu surge this season. Uh, so 1,200 beds across the province. That's the equivalent of about six. Um, medium-sized hospitals, and we're going to keep those beds in place um, because we know that uh, that that's needed. But there's a there's a more fundamental challenge, and that is that there are people who are in some of our uh, acute care hospitals who need to be in other. They need to be in other places. They need to be in transitional um, beds. They don't need acute care beds, but they're not quite ready to be at home uh, with, with home care. So, so we're looking at other models to help people get out of the hospital so that, they can, so that they can get the care that they need in an appropriate way, and then that allows the hospital to, uh, to look after the most uh, acute patients. But all of that requires more support. So when I say that our focus in this throne speech and going into our budget is going to be on uh, health care, at least in part, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about making sure that we put additional supports in place so that the right, the right um, facilities can be available to people. Premier, so much more time, so much more uh, stuff to talk about here, but I guess we'll have to do that in the fullness of time. I know it's a tight day for you. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. 
Thanks very much, Bill. All the best. You too. Premier Kathleen Wynne, of course, who will be proroguing, or has already prorogued the, uh, the legislature. And uh, there'll be a throne speech uh, coming up on Monday, which is rather unusual, I guess, this late into a session. Well, let's find out how unusual it is. Our good friend Richard Brennan, retired journalist for the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for these many years, has uh, seen it all, I guess, over those times. Richard, is it is, is this uh, outside the realm of, of probabilities that there'd be a throne speech this late into the session? Well, absolutely not. It's, it's you know, they're trying to get their best face forward, and the throne speech allows them to, you know, put out all the good things, and that good things are in quotes here, uh, that they've done, and, you know, just re- just to remind people what they've done, and certainly they won't uh, emphasize the, the bad things, but they'll emphasize all the good things, and, and it just, it's, it's, a, it's a refresher, basically, what it is. Is is it? I mean, I've I've saw some of the comments on social media, especially from some of the the, the Tory uh, supporters, and of course from Doug Ford himself, saying, "Well, this is just trying to hit the reset button and clean the slate." Uh, that's still out there. I mean, they're not expecting that we're going to forget what's happened over the last fourteen years, are they? Oh well, they're. I don't think they're that foolish, quite frankly. But uh, uh, no, they're not expecting you to or anyone to forget what's happened. But they are going to emphasize the good things they've done, like you know for. Yeah, drugs for people under 25, and 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 and, and many other things that they they will say they've done, and it really it's just it's it's an oppor- it's an opportunistic thing. That's exactly what it is. And and not the first time, as I mentioned to the premier. I mean that we've seen uh, political ploys that that are being used. I, I remember I had a discussion with Tim Hudak years ago, but uh, uh, I guess it was just around the time of the Walkerton thing, and the inquiry was going on, and obviously the Harris government was taking an awful lot of heat. And I don't think they ever went back to work, if you remember that year, Richard. After the, su- the Christmas break, they just basically uh, dragged the puck until uh, he made an election call, and, and they never actually sat. So, I mean, there are tools that are available to sitting governments, and uh, and obviously, if you know, if they think it's going to be to their advantage, they're going to pull those out of the bag. Well, I can go be better than that. Uh, when I covered Bob Ray, his last year, uh, we we rose, I think it was in the latter part of June, and we never did come back. <laughs> to the election. So it does happen. It does. Well, I mean, look, look at, look at the prime minister, the former prime minister Harper. He was the king of Pirogue and, and he did it to avoid a, a, a non-confidence vote in one, one time. Anyway, I, I forget how many times he Pirogue now. It's, uh, my memory's not the best on that, but I know it, it was a number of times. And one was so he could avoid a confidence vote. So they use they all parties all use it to their advantage. And to your point, though, because I mean, you know, people might look and say, "Well, you know, we already know they're going to do a budget in about ten days, and and that's an opportunity for them to kind of wave the flag about how you know what a great job they've done." But but is is this just going to be a reiteration of that? Is this going to be the pregame show for this? Basically, it will. You know, they'll. It won't be. I mean, you'll get the nuts and bolts with the budget and this is this is kind of the top of the waves that's that's what it is what's this going to do to the to the tories at this stage richard i mean uh you know we, we want to know okay what do you guys stand for and and so far this is and it's only early days obviously i mean the writ hasn't even officially come down yet but i mean we know where the finish line is it's june the 7th but this seems to be the considering the rhetoric that we've heard from from both parties, both the Tories and the Liberals, much more about personality than policy. Is that going to change? Well, with uh, with you know, uh, 
Doug Ford, I don't think it's going to change at all. I don't think he's, you know, that's his stick. It's it's going to be all bluster and, you know, and, and bumper sticker politics. And I'm not condemning him for it. I'm just saying that's what he, that's who he is. You know, making claims that, you know, he saved, he saved millions and millions and millions of dollars when he, he was in, you know, at city council in uh, Toronto. And it, it's just, it's baloney. That's all it is. But are people buying it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> why, I'm not quite sure, but uh, I know why. Because, again, as you and I have talked many times, 15 years of liberal government, it's, it's, it's time to, you know, turn the page. That's what it is. And he's, he's, he's taking advantage of him. And, again, I don't blame him for that. that that's what it's all about. But it's, it's pretty thin on the ground when it, you come, when it comes right now since they scrapped the Brown playbook, that to know exactly what they stand for. And some of the, and some of the things he's touched upon already are making some, some uh, voters uh, squirm, believe me. Speaking of, since you brought Patrick Brown's name up, <laughs> uh, they have announced officially that they won't even allow him to run for the party uh, in the upcoming election, just to even to be a backbencher, if in fact that's what his intention was, up in Barrie, where he's... Uh, been ensconced as the MPP for quite some time and a federal member before that. Uh, is this the end of the road for Patrick Brown? I never say never. I've, I've learned that in 43 years covering politics. I never say that because, believe me, I've been proven wrong so many times. You know, he, he may become, but he's going he's gonna to be in the penalty box for, for some time. But that doesn't mean he, he won't come back. I had to laugh, though. I thought I, was, I thought I was watching a bit of a vaudeville act there with, you're fired. No, I quit. You're fired. No, I quit. Uh, you know, I mean, he's no matter how you slice it, he's gone. But how long he's gone for, that remains to be seen. Uh, it's a safe seat for the for the Tories up there anyway, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they could, as the, you know, that old expression, they could run a yeller dog. And uh, he'd get elected up there. So that's it's not as if the, that, that seat's in peril, I mean, because everyone counts. But as I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, this election is pretty much going to be won or lost in the GTA. I mean, there are 40 seats available right now. The Liberals hold 34 of them right at, at present. Uh, if they can hold on to those and or the majority of those, they got a shot. I mean, th- that's that's really the fertile ground right now for anybody that wants to knock off the uh, the champ, isn't it? Absolutely, and that's, I mean, that's what, you know, that's what Doug Ford's really aiming at is, uh, you know, I, I, think he, I think he's got rural Ontario wrapped up, quite frankly, from the impression I'm getting. Yeah. But, but it's Toronto. It's Toronto he's after. And I don't know, you know, I, I just got a feeling that, uh, again, I've been wrong so many times, but uh, I've got a feeling that you, can, you can't count the Liberals out yet. It is in early days. Of, in terms at least showing well, and whether they win or not, it's a different thing. But whether, you know, I'm hearing all kinds of wild things, you know, like the, the Tories are going to get 98 seats and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of, and that's just pre-election, pre-election rhetoric. That's what it is. Well, the numbers that we've seen and, and the uh, the projections that we've seen are really just based on percentages. In other words, if somebody's done a poll and they said that the uh, the Liberals are 23%, they just extrapolate that and say 23% of the 100 seats means here's how many seats you're going to get. But it depends on where those votes are. Uh, as you mentioned, rural Ontario hardly ever votes Liberal anyway. So, I mean, those votes, you, are, you know, are going to go mostly to the Conservatives 
it's it's really this this this, this GTA area. It's it's Toronto. It's Mississauga. It's Brampton. Uh, that's where the voters are, and that's where the seats are, and uh, that's where they got to be shooting. But are they going to do that? I mean, you know, are the Tories going to pick up support there by talking about wind turbines and sex ed curriculum? In Toronto, uh, no. But yeah, you know, they Doug Ford has a following in Toronto. Yeah. So he could win some ridings just in Scarborough and Etobicoke. I don't know how much you'll penetrate the the inner core of the city. I. I I don't. I can't imagine it. But again, it's just the unknown here is how much people are sick and tired of the liberals, and that is so hard to gauge. Yeah, it is absolutely. And uh, and you know, to my question about policy over personality, if people don't want to hear policy and they don't care about it and they're just making their mind up already, it's going to be an awfully big obstacle to overcome. Richard, uh, I've got to do a break here, but thanks so much for the time today. we got a lot more to talk about, and I'm sure after the throne speech on Monday, there'll be some uh, things that we need to chew on. But have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Richard Brennan, retired journalist, of course, covered uh, Queen's Park for many, many years for the Toronto Star. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party uh, made a few announcements yesterday. Uh, we already talked to the Premier about her announcement about proroguing the uh, the legislature, but uh, the PCs were busy. Uh, they have reopened the nomination process in three provincial ridings, include one here in this area, the Hamilton West-Dancaster-Dundas riding, that uh, was very controversial. Actually, there were quite a few of them that were, but uh, they've, they focused on three so far. And as you uh, heard on CHML News, Patrick Brown uh, will not be allowed to run in the upcoming election. Uh, the uh, PC uh, hierarchy has decided that they would not even sign his nomination papers if he decided to pursue this. Uh, Brown countered by saying, well, I wasn't going to run anyway. I already made that decision. So <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on. fact is, he's, uh, he's not going to be around, uh, at least for a while anyway. Uh, joining us to talk about this and, and some of the other things electorally here in the province of Ontario, Christo Ivalis, uh, Social Sciences Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow, in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Any, listen, any other time you'd have a political party that had such a mess of their nomination process, and I know they're going to do redos on three of these, but there are a lot of other ones that were controversial. Uh, certainly the Patrick Brown scenario, uh, the leadership, the, you know, the, the, the race that went on, which essentially uh, ended up with Doug Ford, of course, winning this thing. It would be so easy to characterize this as a party that's just in disarray right now Yet they still seem to be just rocking it in the polls right now. Is is anybody paying attention, or is it that it just doesn't matter to them? You know, I think um, I think it's a bit of both. I think you know a lot of people, despite the fact that this has been more entertaining than the average political news. You know, um, I think a lot of voters really start paying attention uh, during the election, and sometimes not even during the beginning parts. I mean. The last federal election, that was a very long one, so it's a bit different, mm-hmm. but really people didn't start paying attention until halfway through that campaign when average voters kind of got back after Labor Day and it's like, okay, better, better start looking at what the election's going to play out as. And I think with this year, you're seeing some of that. I think the Conservatives had a big lead, so obviously, you know, even if they bleed a little bit, they're still in a good position. Um, but there is a chance that, you know, Doug Ford being, you know, rather unpopular... There, there might not be a honeymoon for Doug Ford. Um, combined with some of these issues means that once voters start paying more attention, it could come up uh, and, and you know, bite them in the rear, in a sense. What about policy? I was just talking with Richard Brennan, who, of course, covered Queen's Park for many, many years. 
And and elections oftentimes become personality over policy. But at some point, uh, do disgruntled voters, even as, as big a number as that might be here in the province of Ontario, do they start yearning for policy to say, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I think that's definitely something that the average voter uh, jumps into a little bit later. Um, I think that, you know, they're certainly going to want to see what the vision is. They're going to want to see from Kathleen Wynne, because she's unpopular, in a sense, what is she going to do differently? Um, The Liberals have to make a case for, you know, look, we're not very popular right now. We acknowledge that, but we, you know, if you have faith in us, we can be different. Um, You know, the Conservatives have to kind of balance this new leader with his very personal, with his style, with the kind of platform that they can't deviate too far from, I'm guessing, because there's not a lot of time prepared by Patrick Brown. So how do you merge the Doug Ford brand with the Patrick Brown people's guarantee? And finally, you have Andrea Horwath, who I think has to uh, be able to show people, look, all the good things Kathleen Wynne done, uh, has done have kind of either generated from our pl- platform book in some way, and we can offer you kind of genuine progressive change and we, we can do that without having to, you know, embrace some of the more unsavory things that people see out of the, the Doug Ford camp. And if they can all do that, and, and once voters start paying attention, I think that's when you might see some bigger movement in the polls. What about that? that let's talk about the, the People's Guarantee, which was the policy, the, the electoral platform, for all intents and purposes, that the uh, progressive conservatives thought that they were going to be heading into the election. And, of course, the Patrick Brown stuff hit the fan. Uh, but they've just about, uh, well, all of the candidates, and now certainly Doug Ford, who emerged as the winner, have disavowed an awful lot of the stuff that's in there. I mean, obviously the carbon tax is, is right at the top of that list as far as Ford is concerned. But, I mean, there are policies in there to deal with LGBTQ rights, which I, I, I'm i assuming, based on what the Ford brothers said when they were on city council in Toronto, that they're not very comfortable with. Uh, there's a number of different initiatives there about transit. Uh, rarely hear that sort of a discussion in, in Tory circles. Do they throw that whole thing in the blue box and start from square one? Or is there some of that stuff that they can at least adopt and try to be comfortable with? You know, if, 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 if the Patrick Brown story happened even a few months earlier, say last year, it would certainly still be awfully cutting it close. But, you know, one, the challenge is when you run for leader, you run on different things and you talk differently than when you run for premier. That's for all parties. That's for all parties. Um, and so for the conservatives, there's a, you know, as a proportion of the Ontario electorate, social conservatives are, you know, not, not negligible, but they're not, they're not half the population. But in the conservative party, they form a formidable voting bloc. And Doug Ford did reach out to those people and was very successful at getting Tanya Granich's supporters. Uh, and they were, many of them, a vast majority went to Doug Ford as their second choice. And she was running on a kind of social conservative platform. I think you know, they would normally try to pivot. But you're right in saying that, you know, the people's guarantee because was, was relatively moderate on, on, on economic issues and tried to be more progressive on social issues. And Doug Ford's narrative thus far uh, isn't quite in line. He has kind of said, look, I'm going to cut the gravy train, but I'm not going to cut jobs. I'm going to, you know, do compassionate cuts. He's tried to kind of be in between brown and hudak uh recognizing the kind of need for cuts but but not not saying i'm going to fire a hundred thousand people but you know i think there's a concern again if one of the revenue generators from um 
the people's guarantee is no longer there, how are they going to do it? Is Doug Ford going to break his promise on taxes or is Doug Ford going to break his promise on uh, cutting jobs or is he going to break his promise on privatization or cutting services? And, and I mean, voters might not know because it's hard to square that triangle. But but there's a pragmatism here that seems to be missing. And and, and I wrote about this a couple of days ago, and, I was, and certainly from some of the, the, the conservative supporters have taken some heat, and that, that's fine. But, but the, I'm just asking a question here. I mean, you can't, you know, suck and blow at the same time. Uh, in an interview earlier this week, uh, Ford said uh, that, that, you know, he's going to find all-sea savings, billions of dollars in savings, but he's not going to cut any jobs. He's not going to cut any programs. You can't do it that way, Christo. I mean, we know that. If governments are going to reduce their spending, you're going to do one of three things. You're going to either cut jobs, you're going to cut programs, or you're going to sell off assets. I mean, that's really what you've got to do. And and yep. he says he can do it without any of that. He says, well, we're going to buy paper in bulk. But that's not going to find you $4 billion in savings. No, no. I mean, I, I agree. And I think, you know, both both the liberals and conservatives, in a sense, um, you know, have, have had to deal with that difficulty. I mean, the liberals have said they're going to run a bit of a deficit, but, you know, one of the things they did, and, and the, the budget office has doubted the efficacy, is they privatized hydro as an attempt to cover some of their costs. And I think that you're right in saying that Doug Ford realized, he's not, he's not, a, he's not a dumb man by any means, that, that Tim Hudak got beaten down pretty hard on this campaign around cutting jobs and cutting services, and um, he doesn't want to fall in the same trap, yet he doesn't want to... Um, appear to be tacking on to the Kathleen Wynne line of, of taxes and whatnot. It doesn't want to be appear to support Trudeau's carbon tax. So he really is trying to have it both ways. I mean, I think, you know, the, the path is you, if you want to defend public services, you have to, you know, make sure the revenue is there and you have to make sure that they remain in public hands. You know, Andrew Horwath has been talking about things like that. And I feel that out of the three parties, he's perhaps the most consistent on that. Uh, Doug Ford needs to, I guess, find the box he's in, there's a risk. Maybe he gets away with it. Maybe he has a Trumpian quality and he can sell people on it. But with his position, there's a risk that you make everyone mad. You make the, the budget hawks mad and you make the social program lovers mad. If you're if you're stuck in the middle, neither will trust you. I, exactly. And, and then, you know, under the context of, of polarization, I mean, just because you criticize one party, everybody automatically assumes, oh, you're supporting somebody else. Uh, the liberals in 14 years in office, they got a long, long list of things that they need to be held accountable for. Uh, deficits not you know right at the top of that list, but the whole thing is was with Ford is is if that's what you're going to do if you're promising that that your big priority here is a tax cut, show us what you're going to do. In other words, it's it's like a math question, right, Christo? I mean, don't just give me the answer. You got to show your work. Where's the money nope. going to come from? And because we've we've heard this song before. I mean, in 1995, Mike Harris promised all sorts of tax cuts too, and then we found out the way he was going to do it is he downloaded stuff on the municipalities, which cost us even more because our property taxes skyrocketed in many cities. Uh, you know, he didn't say that during the campaign, but that's what he did once he got in office. I, I think Ford owes it, and the conservatives owe it to us to say, if this is what my priority is, I want to raise taxes and cut costs. Where are you going to cut? What programs are you going to cut? What people are you going to let go? What or what? What assets are you going to sell? Yep. No, I, I think you're right. I think transparency is important. I think if the conservatives are confident in their ideology and if they're confident in their platform that people want smaller government or people want a more business-centric approach, then they should offer that to people and, and be clear on how they can do it. And maybe there is a more tactful way of doing it than Tim Hudak did it, um, but still is perhaps 
more to the point and more honest. I think the reality is, is they realized, kind of like the Ontario Liberals did, that, look, we can say what we want to get elected, but we have all these things we want to privatize. The Liberals privatized Ontario Hydro very soon into their mandate. It was clearly something they were planning to do, but didn't have the guts to tell the electorate about. And I think that Doug Ford, and this is my personal opinion, probably has things on that. He's already talked about, for instance, reversing the, um, the Ontario cannabis um, system and, and making that more free market. So yeah. that might be a place where he feels he can generate private um, revenue. I'm not sure. But, you know, he has talked about that. But who knows? Maybe Doug Ford would want to privatize the LCBO. We really don't know. Um, you know, and, and with Kathleen Wynne, I mean, she's talked about creating new programs and new spending. But honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if she has something that she wants to privatize should she win another majority government. It really wouldn't, because the, the liberals and conservatives both share that broad ideological vision of the private economy is better than the democratically owned economy. So, you know, it, it's going to be tricky for, for them to run on something that I don't think is very popular. But it, I, yeah, the voters in this province that upset and... and, and with what's gone on, uh, with hydro rates and a number of other things, that they'll accept anything? In other words, they will accept the rhetoric? I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think people are ready for, for a change on, on the hydro question. I think they've realized that, you look for 100 years, 100, more than 100 years, um, started by a conservative. Uh, there was a, a public hydro system that made Ontario from an you know, industrial backwater uh, into one of the most industrialized places in the entire world. And that was done through the public ownership of energy instead of the private ownership of energy. And that in the last 25 years or so, under the privatization system, it's kind of gone to crap. And I think people are at least willing to hear out Andrea Horlath's idea. Who knows? You know, who knows how it's going to work in the future? But it's certainly, I think, people are open to the idea again for the first time maybe since the 80s that, look, uh, companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're going to need public ownership to kind of counterbalance the power of monopolistic business. And one of the ways we can do that is in energy. And in, in the 21st century, you know, electricity uh, is going to not only power our homes and stuff, you know, it, it pow- like people with Bitcoin now, it, it powers everything. And if Ontario wants to compete globally, it's going to need cheap, democratically controlled energy. And I think people are willing to hear that out. And I don't think the conservatives and the liberals um, are, 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 are capturing that, 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 that note on that issue. It seems as if this may be the first time in, in the last three or four elections that there are going to be three very unique choices. And, and there's going to be some bleed through, I guess, in policies, because, as you say, the Liberals have kind of uh, taken a couple of NDP things, uh, you know, about pharmacare, which has actually been on the docket since 1964, but nobody's bothered to do anything about it. But that's out there right now, and things like free tuition. So there's, there's, there's some blurred lines there, but at the same time, it looks like three very, very definite choices here when people go to vote on the, on the 7th of June. No, I think so. And I think viable choices. I mean, the polls obviously differ from pollster to pollster and from poll to poll. But all of them that I've seen have had all three parties at around a quarter or greater support, which is, you know, quite substantive to have three parties above 25 percent. Even, you know, it's that and I think gives uh, a sense that each party has substantive support and that given that we haven't even dropped a writ yet and, you know, things can move a lot more when people are paying more attention. I think all three parties can win, and I think you're right in saying that there is some overlap. The conservatives and liberals have overlap on their general support for privatization and contracting out, uh, you know, a kind of ambivalence to a lot of uh, labor policy, you know, Bill 148 uh, notwithstanding. And you're right that the, the liberals and the NDP share some things, you know, OHIP plus, 
you know, being a lot different than the NDP's more universal pharmacare, but being kind of in the same mentality. I think the question is going to be is how can parties um, differentiate themselves during the race? I mean, you know, the natural advantage, I think, to that goes to Doug Ford because he can differentiate himself on a lot of kind of emotional issues around things like sexual education and things like that. But in terms of political culture, maybe it's Andrea Horwath, who, you know, is much more well-liked than the other two leaders. Um, she's quite popular, and, and, and Kathleen Wynne is obviously not very popular. And Doug Ford, um, despite being a new leader that often gets a bit of a, bit of a, you know, a honeymoon, uh, is unpopular himself. So on a political culture and a culture change, maybe Horwath is the one who can show herself as being different than the other two. It's it's interesting, and maybe that's the biggest question in this whole campaign as it starts to roll forward, uh, is Doug Ford himself, and just how popular is this guy? Uh, not just within the GTA, but, I mean, outside of that. Uh, and I know that he scored well because he tended to gravitate to, to, to some of, uh, the you know, the uh, neocon policies, uh, you know, vis-a-vis sex ed and things of that nature. And and, and Tanya Granick uh, certainly I don't, had an influence in, in how they were forming that. But do they stick to their guns? And are those the sorts of policies that are going to win votes for them in the cities, which is where the majority of the votes are? I mean, I, you know, I don't think so. I don't think that those are the kind of policies that are going to win them government. I think those policies can't be fully discarded. Again, one, because, again, while, while kind of Patrick Brown ran on a more moderate idea and took a couple of years to kind of silence that, Doug Ford recently just depended in a very close race upon social conservatives to give him the leadership. And there's not a lot of time to pivot. He's going to feel to a certain degree that he owes those people. And that those are the kind of people, again, they might not be the majority of voters, but they'll be donors and they'll be, at, and they'll be volunteers. And those are the people you need to win elections, people who are going to drive to the polls, people who are going to knock on doors, people who are going to lick stamps for you and, and all those sorts of things. And one of those people could be worth many voters in terms of their value to a campaign. Um, but in terms of winning that voter, that, that, that middle class voter in the 905 or somebody, maybe not right downtown Toronto, but somebody within the GTA who, you know, is a little worried about social issues like that, I feel like that's not their path to victory, or certainly not their path to a majority. I think their path to a majority is kind of attacking Kathleen Wynne on economic issues, and I think that's where they'll find the most success, because I feel a lot of people are generally supportive of kind of a more progressive social agenda on things like sex ed and on things like uh, GLBTQ rights and on things like abortion, and I don't think that's a winning platform for a general election in Ontario. I, I mean, I know we got to run here, but I mean, I, everybody just seems to give Toronto to Doug Ford and simply saying, "Well, he's a really popular guy," uh, and and I, that remains to be seen. I mean, he served one term on council; we get that, but I mean, his notoriety being on Toronto council was that he was Rob Ford's brother. I, I can't really think of any major policy. Uh, initiatives that were, you know, initiated by Doug Ford and, and, you know, to move things along. He simply supported his brother and whatever his brother tried to do. But it's also Kathleen Wynne's home turf. And, uh, and you know, this is a lady that's won three elections. Uh, I think I think it's it's that's going to be the battleground right there in the GTA, and it's going to be interesting to see just uh, how they decide they're, they're going to move forward on this. And you and I will talk about it as it uh, unfolds over the weeks ahead. Christo, thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Christo Avalos, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. And, and clearly, you know, we, we're going to hear a guess something from the Liberals, obviously, with their throne speech on Monday. Uh, but the, the Conservatives need to get on into the ballgame, too, and start talking about some policy announcements. I know that 
Uh, right now, it's been some cliches and buzzwords from Doug Ford. You know, we're going to cut the fat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But people want details. And uh, with the people's guarantee pretty much tossed out the window right now, they're going to have to come up with a policy pretty quickly and see if that can resonate with uh, Ontario voters. It's going to get very, very interesting. And there will be blood on the floor, you can bet, uh, during some of these leaders' debates. We'll follow it all as it happens. And, of course, talk about it right here on The Bill Kelly Show. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, it continues. Uh, the exodus out of the White House, and I understand that uh, you, usually there are staff changes and, you know, administrations come and go, and that happens from time to time. But uh, there are an inordinate number of folks that have left uh, the Donald Trump administration. He's only been in power a little more than a year but, uh, well, we're not even sure what the rationalization is for a lot of the stuff that's being made, uh, the decisions that are being made. Uh, the uh, the last one obviously kind of jumps out at us because it seems rather uh, counterproductive to what's going on. Uh, you know, Trump made the big announcement about a week or so ago that he was going to have a summit meeting with the North Korean leader uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, you would have thought that uh, that was time to sit down with some of his staff and bone up on, on policy and a number of initiatives and things that have gone on. But in the days after that, of course, he fired his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who was uh, basically the lead guy on the North Korean file. He was the one that counseled the president some months ago that uh, that diplomacy was the way to solve this thing, as opposed to, you know, pushing the button on his desk. Uh, Trump disagreed with that, but all of a sudden now, I guess, policy and, and diplomacy seems to be the way to go. So I figured, okay, fine. So he's replaced Tillerson. Now we find out that his uh, national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, is being let go. Apparently he's not leaving right now, but uh, he's been told he's done, he's out. Which kind of makes you wonder, with uh, some rather important international files going on, just who is Trump leaning on for advice? Interesting idea. George Breckenridge, retired political science professor from McMaster University, joins us uh, to talk about this. How are you this morning, George? Oh, I'm fine, Bill. This is uh, getting more bizarre every day. It is. <laughs> uh, no matter what your your feelings are about Trump and, and whether you, you know he's making America great again, uh, on an international level, which is really where the repercussions, I think, are most going to be felt about Tillerson and now McMaster, uh, I'm sure a lot of people in foreign governments right now are scratching their heads. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the whole uh, North Korea thing and then firing Tillerson and then partly going to fire McMaster, who are the two key people in any presidency in dealing with uh, issues like that, foreign policy issues, particularly one as important as the North Korea relationship. Well, I mean, he, he, his decision to accept the, uh, the, what he took to be an invitation to talk to Kim uh, Jong Un, uh, I guess is, is <laughs> that's the way, that's the son, um, with an impulsive decision. That's that's you can see that's how he makes decisions. There's no real reflection. He didn't consult anybody. You know, normally, and an, any kind of normal president would have consulted with State Department and you know Defense Department and all kinds of other people. And and before making such a such a move, now apparently one of the reasons he wants to do this is because no other president has done it. You know, there's no 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 sitting president has has talked to North Korea, and so this is that's partly what appeals to him. You see, but again, there's no prep to everybody immediately. All the experts immediately said, "Well, you something like this takes months of preparation, you know, and prep, pr- you know, prior talks and negotiations, and, and the summit is the final, you know, the final thing which goes ahead if 
previous negotiations are going in the right direction. There's none of that, you know. And not only that, he, you know, he he then fires the two people who would, you know, who would be his principal advisors on the whole question. Let me ask you about a logistical question here because yeah. I'm I'm kind of puzzled this by this myself, George. Uh, it was last Thursday, just before I made the announcement about the tariffs, that uh, the Trump walked into the the yeah. press room at the White House. That's another impulsive decision. Yeah, yeah and and walked in and says, "I hope I'm gonna, you guys are going to give me a lot of credit for this." So I, I don't know if he's edging for a Nobel Peace Prize or whatever, but <laughs> but but instead of having his staff make the announcement, he did it himself to the to the, the assembled uh, uh, media folks that were in that room at the time. Yeah, but we've heard little to nothing from North Korea about this. Well, that's right. There's been no reply from. They North haven't Korea said, "Yeah, we're looking forward to it." Yeah, we did. They, they, I don't even know if they've even acknowledged what Trump said. No, that's right. Well, they, the, in, in the news today, the North Korean foreign minister was, has been in Sweden, where he was previously ambassador. So some people think maybe he's trying to set up a meeting, the meeting there, you know, as a possibility of meeting a neutral ground like that. But no, they, they haven't replied at all. I mean, and of course, the, the South Korean government, which is the current government wants to uh, negotiate with North South Korea, with North Korea, and uh, you know the previous one didn't, really didn't want to do that, but this one does. Are the are the intermediaries in this whole thing? So I, it's not at all clear that this is actually going to happen, you know. But clearly Trump sees it as something he could do that nobody else was able to do, you know, and without any kind of serious thought about what happens if the whole thing blows up, you know, if it fails. You know, that summit meeting is normally the final stage of something, and with lots and lots of preparation. And he looks like he's prepared to just, you know, barge right in and have a summit right away. And what happens if they don't get on? If it doesn't work? You know, if if Kim Jong Un doesn't like him, he, he likes people who like to like him, and that's what influences him emotionally. And what happens? So maybe they'll hit it off. You know, the two kind of weird guys will hit it off. <laughs> yeah, but that and, and maybe they will. I, I, you know, we, that's yet to be determined, obviously. But I guess you have to ask yourselves about policy. And I mean, well, if if, right. if if the goal of of a, a summit meeting between uh, these two individuals yeah. is supposed to be to get some sort of an agreement about uh, about nuclear arms racing, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't I, they, I don't know that they've had that conversation. And for all the time and money that uh, that North Korea has spent to develop, uh, not just yeah. the technology, but the ability now to transport these things. Uh, I'd be very surprised if King Jong-un said, oh, you want me to stop? Sure, I'll stop. Uh, they're going to want something in return if they're even going to do it. And and I guess even more so, George, as we've seen historically, one of the other reasons that mo- other, no other president has done this is because North Koreans don't hold up any, any, their end of the bargain. Well, that's right. They haven't in the past. So presidents have got close. I think Clinton was one who got close yeah, to, yeah. to actually going. He sent uh, his Secretary of State. But uh, in the end, you know, they didn't. They haven't abided by previous agreements. Now, some people think that because they are now established as a nuclear power and have apparently the potential to hit the United States, that they've reached a kind of a certain plateau, and now they are more confident that they can, you know, they can. Uh, they're not going to give any of that away, obviously. And so uh, now they're more confident of what now what they want is recognition as a, as a nuclear power. And so the president um, talking to them, particularly if he ended up going to uh, Pyongyang, um, is, is, a, is, you know, what they want. They want this kind of recognition. They're not going to give away the nuclear weapons, obviously not. So what is, does America get out of it? It's not at all clear. 
I think I'm not at all sure that this is going to happen. There's no date set or anything like that. Well, and you got to wonder just what the agenda is going to be. And, and usually, as you say, anytime there's a summit meeting of this magnitude, uh, you know, the uh, the underlings, the, uh, the you know, yeah. the, the staff are the ones that are going back and forth. Uh, trying to trying to get some sort of an agenda and agreement so that there can be, like you say, it's a well, photo, it's a photo op, really, a signing ceremony. Months and sometimes years of preparation for something like that. It's and, and none of this has been done. And you know, we were talking about a meeting in May or June, was it June or something? Um, you know, and, and then he, you know, he gets rid of the people here. <laughs> he puts new people in charge. Or, of the State Department and apparently the National Security Agency. Well, well, let's talk about that, George. I mean, you know, Trump's been in office, as we say, yeah. uh, a little more than a year now. He was sworn right. in in January, of course, of last year. Right. Uh, this is his second National Security Advisor. The first one was Michael Flynn, and we know right. how that ended. Right, right. Uh, 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 you know, he was up to his eyeballs in FBI investigations and, right. and finally had to step aside, and uh, we're told he cut a deal with uh, with the prosecutors. We'll see how that pans out. Uh, so when Flynn left and had to leave... Uh, McMaster was hired, but mm-hmm. both of these people, George, were pan picked by by Trump. Yeah. Uh, it's not as if there's somebody foisted them on and said, "You got to take this guy now." He said, in both cases, these are great people. This is exactly yeah. what I want. Yeah. And months after that, boom, they're gone. Well, part part of his problem all along has been that you know he 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 not only didn't know anything about Washington, he didn't know anybody in Washington. And the, the foreign policy establishment, the Republican end of the foreign policy establishment, I don't nearly all signed letters condemning him, you know, to try and prevent his nomination. You know, so, so he, he, he wanders into Washington. He doesn't know anybody. He has no connections. He's got a you know, bunch of odds and sods he's collected around him. So he's been unable to use, um, the you know the established republican related connected experts on all of these things which is not any other president any other republican president would have done you know so he's he's sidelined all of that or they have sidelined themselves and of course the way he's been conducting the white house i mean who in their right mind would want to you know any respectable person <laughs> We're looking for a future in politics or in or in foreign affairs, wouldn't go anywhere near it now. It is case. so he's 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 scraping around on the edge of things. Pompeo, on the other hand, does seem to be a fairly ambitious character. He was a member of Congress, and so he and yet he obviously gets on with Trump. And, uh, well, so they're, maybe, they're maybe cut from the same maybe cloth. He'll, maybe he will be a good influence. See, the, the problem for everybody, and this is true of Trudeau, for example, as well, or, or other international leaders, how do you deal with something like this? What do you do? I mean, what do you, you know, when he, when he makes, up it, uh, makes up facts and then boasts about it and jokes about it and everything else, how, how do you deal with him? Um, and so the, the somebody like uh, Pompeo, who's going to be the new Secretary of State, and he, he'll be confirmed, I think, without much difficulty. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe he's found the right kind of key to, to ingratiate himself enough that Trump will listen to him. So it's possible he might be actually be a good influence on the whole situation. Does, does Trump student. listen to anybody, though? Well, well he's, yeah, he well, listens to people on Fox News. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, aside from Sean Hannity, I guess does he That's listen to anybody? Well, anybody who goes on Fox, if you want to get his attention, 
go on Fox News and say nice things about him. That's not. I'm not joking or exaggerating. That's exactly what's been going on. When, so, when Barack Obama made overtures a few years ago that he wanted to go and talk to the North Korean leader, yeah. Hannity went on Fox News and said that it was one of the most embarrassing moments in, in U.S. foreign policy yeah, by yeah, an inexperienced yeah. president. When yeah. Donald Trump suggested the same thing, he said it was one of the great moments of That's diplomacy right. in United States history. <laughs> I guess it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Well, Fox News is just way, way out there. It's really become increasingly just a propaganda outfit of, of the, of not only of the Republican Party but of Trump himself. I mean, that's really what it's become. It's, it's got even it's deteriorated steadily with Trump in power, and so it's hard to take it seriously. But uh, but he takes it seriously. He spends a lot of his time watch apparently watching it, and uh, and and picking up. People, you know, he has some, a lot of the people he's appointed or tried to appoint to things are people who are pundits on on Fox News. And so, if you want to get into the White House, apparently that's the way, that's the main route. But in all seriousness, I mean, he, he's 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 reshuffling his team. So he's got Pompeo, whoever he gets, John Bolton, who's being suggested as his national security advisor, is a real extremist. I mean, it's way out there. And um, way out there, and that would be a ter- that would be a really bad influence. So maybe you'll get somebody a little more a little more um, a little more mainstream. John Bolton, of course, was the uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations yeah, uh, under the under, Bush administration. Under George W. Bush, and yeah. uh, he was such an embarrassment. They actually had to call him back. I mean, it was pretty frightening stuff. And yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see the politics within the politics here. But even the guy who seems to be trying to orchestrate all this stuff, uh, you know, given some of the orders he's getting from his boss is uh, the chief of staff, John Kelly, of course. Yeah. And Kelly was rumored to be leaving about a month ago. Oh, yeah, ago. he was. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a matter of time before Kelly either finally gives up or, or Trump gets tired of him. You see, he, he, he resents what the staff have been doing. All I've had to do all along is to try and manage Trump, his moods and his sudden impulsive decisions, and they have to talk him down out of all kinds of situations. And he resents it you see he wants to be you know he feels he's the smartest guy in the room and you know his instincts are his gut instincts are correct and so he's constantly kind of struggling and yet the staff as being you know even the staff he's been able to collect you know which are you know who are really relatively serious people a lot of them have been desperately trying to kind of rein him in and they've succeeded on of course in in the past in a number of issues and he makes these impulsive decisions like he did on, on tariffs again, and then has to keep backing off it, you know, because it, 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 it wasn't thought through. It's just a prejudice that he has in his head. What about credibility, George? Let's talk a little bit about that. And, yeah. and I understand that there's, there's always a little bit of, uh, you know, concern if, with anybody in, in world leadership. I mean, people have to say what they have to say, and we get that. Yeah. But, but when you're doing something as, uh, as sensitive as discussing uh, nuclear proliferation with North Korea, yeah. uh, you've got to have some credibility. And I mean, uh, and I know that here in Canada, I mean, in some circles, I've seen some of the pushback about the story that Trump basically made up stuff to when he was talking to Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yeah. And they said, well, what's the big deal? It is a big deal. It because is. Because right off the bat, 
whether you're talking about Angela Merkel in Germany or you're talking about Prime Minister May in the UK or, or Morcada in France, they're basically saying, I can't trust anything this guy says because he, well, well, right. we, we know right now that he, he has no problem at all with simply making up facts to, to try to substantiate whatever his tilted point of view is. So how can we actually negotiate with this well, guy? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, how do you deal with somebody like that? What is the best way to deal with that? I mean, I think Trudeau has, has handled it pretty well. Sort of being, you know, kind of friendly without being sycophantic, and yet being firm. You know, the Canadian government has been been pretty firm, you know, on on NAFTA, and that's the only way to deal with him. I think you just not in one level you don't take a lot of what he says seriously, but on the other hand, you you know, these are serious decisions. Even something like tariffs is a very serious decision. You know, if he were to go through with it, now it's it's not you know it's not going to happen either, but. Um, how do you, uh, if you're a world statesman, uh, how do you, how do you deal with it? What do you, do? <laughs> what do you do? Do you contradict him, or do you flatter him, or what do you do? Well, if you contradict him, you're out the door. Well, that's the thing. That's that's right. You see, the, one of the other very odd things about Trump, and this is this people realize it's true in relation to women, but it's also true in relation to men. Apparently, he wants them to look good. He comments on how they look, and apparently John Bolton looks good on television. You know, so he's he's this kind of strange, um, judging by appearances. You know, he wants people to look good. So, for example, um, Senator Corker from Tennessee, who is the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, who would have, who would have been an, an excellent choice, I think, as Secretary of State, is too short. He doesn't look the part, whereas Tillerson looked the part. <laughs> and then, that, this is, you know, this sounds like fantasy, but it's true. There's lots of evidence of this. It's very, it's, it's, the whole thing is just beyond bizarre, you know. And the question is, what on earth do you do with something like that when you can't get rid of him? You know? Well, and the whole thing with Tillerson is, I mean, let's face it. When he was appointed, George, yeah, there was a great deal of concern in the international circles because of Tillerson's work, of course, with the oil industry. Well, that's right. That he was going to, you know, be cozying up to the Soviets, yeah. and and as it turned out, it was quite the opposite. I mean, he's yeah. he was the one member of that cabinet that that took on Putin, and it and is, and eventually, not just for yeah. the comments he made last week, but I mean, uh, initially about some of the work that was going on, especially in Eastern Europe, and yeah. he 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 was one of the few people that would criticize Putin, and apparently that's sorely in, intolerable behavior, I guess, in the Trump administration. Right. So that cost him his job. But you've got to wonder about the, the, the priorities and where this is going. And and like I say, this is a key time. This is a pivotal time yeah. uh, for these negotiations. And uh, he seems to be shedding staff as opposed to bringing people well, in that can actually right. help that's him. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. The whole thing, it, it seems to depend on some kind of chemistry. You know, now, you know that's true in personal relations You know, in, in any situation. But it seems particularly peculiar in his particular case. He has to feel comfortable with them. In other words, they have to like him. They have to not contradict him. They have to, you know, kind of flatter him the way the cabinet did at one of his meetings. Yeah. You know, and otherwise he gets fed up with them, you know, and he doesn't, he doesn't want to listen to them and he doesn't want to see them. And, and he has to go and find somebody else, you know. And uh, so the churn, the turnover has just been phenomenal. I mean, way, way, way more than, than any other uh, 
any other president. I mean, working in the White House is tough for the for not you know the president lives above the store, but the rest of them, it's really it's really a, a de- very demanding job. It is, and, and, it's, it's, and right. it's even more demanding when you get a mercurial, impulsive, unpredictable character like Trump. Exactly, George. Thanks as always for the input. Great talking with you again today. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. George Breckenridge, retired political science professor at McMaster University. Uh, we could go on about this, but obviously these are very trying times and troubling times. And uh, well, if you're looking for somebody who's got a steady hand on the wheel, and when this is happening, I'm not so sure that's going on right now in the White House, anyway. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.